Bankless Nation, we got a live stream for you here today. We're going to get some questions answered about, I think, something that people have the most questions about, which is restaking, Eigenlayer, AVS networks, timelines, where's the yield coming from, what are we going to do? Uh, there's a lot of different questions I have, a lot of different questions that other people have had, and I have sourced questions for the past two weeks from people around the crypto sphere, around the Ethereum ecosystem, both on Twitter, in my DMs, on Farcaster as well. We are going to bang through all of these questions one by one by one. I've got 23 questions total. Some of them are redundant, so I'll ask them all at once. Uh, some of them will be longer than others. Some of them will be very short. Um, we're going to get through all of them. We're going to get you guys some answers to the questions that you guys have about Eigenlayer. So I'm going to bring on two people out of the Eigenlayer ecosystem. One you might not be as familiar with, Nima Vaziri, uh, uh, who I actually met at ETH Denver 2019. Uh, and he is joining the Eigenlayer ecosystem, the Eigenlabs team. Uh, and also Sriram, Kanan, everyone knows Sriram. Uh, so we're going to bring them on in just a second. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Kraken knows crypto. Kraken's been in the crypto game for over a decade. And as one of the largest and most trusted exchanges in the industry, Kraken is on the journey with all of us to see what crypto can be. Human history is a story of progress. It's part of us, hardwired. We're designed to seek change everywhere, to improve, to strive. And if anything can be improved, why not finance? Crypto is a financial system designed with the modern world in mind. Instant, permissionless, and 24-7. It's not perfect, and nothing ever will be perfect. But crypto is a world-changing technology at a time when the world needs it the most. That's the Kraken mission, to accelerate the global adoption of cryptocurrency so that you and the rest of the world can achieve financial freedom and inclusion. Head on over to kraken.com bankless to see what crypto can be. Not investment advice, crypto trading involves risk of loss. Cryptocurrency services are provided to U.S. and U.S territory customers by Payward Ventures Eek, PVI, doing business as Kraken. Celo is the mobile-first, EVM-compatible, carbon-negative blockchain built for the real world. And now, something big is happening. Introducing the Celo Layer 2. It's a game-changing proposal that's going to bring Celo's rapidly growing ecosystem home to Ethereum. Vitalik has shared his excitement for the Celo Layer 2 on the Celo Forum, so has Ben Jones from Optimism. But why? The Celo Layer 2 will bring huge advantages, like a decentralized sequencer, off-chain data availability, and one block finality. What does all that mean? Rock-solid security, a trustless bridge to Ethereum, and more real-world use cases for Ethereum without compromise. And real-world adoption is happening. Active addresses on Celo have grown over 500% in the last six months. With the Celo Layer 2, gas fees will stay low, and you can even pay for gas using ERC-20 tokens. But Celo is a community-governed protocol. This means that Celo needs you to weigh in and make your voice heard. Join the conversation in the Celo Forum. Follow at Celo.org on Twitter and visit Celo.org to shape the future of Ethereum. I'm joined with Sriram Kanan, the founder of Modern Restaking. Sriram, welcome back to the show. Hey, uh, hi, David. Really excited to be here. We're looking forward to doing this together. And uh, also next to him, we got Nima Viziri, Ecosystem Research and Development over at Eigenlayer. Nima, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Also, Nima, very, Nima very you're, a, you're a new face for us. Maybe give us a, a little bit of your introduction, who you are and, and what you do at Eigenlayer. Yeah, sure. So I joined the Eigenlabs team uh, a few months ago um, to lead the ecosystem development um, and AVS, you know, um, uh, teams that have been interfacing with the with the protocol. Um, right before this, I was actually a, a research partner at Polychain, which is how I joined, which is how I got to know about the protocol in its early stages, and I just saw the ecosystem kind of flourishing. So um, I was super excited to hit up Shiram, like, "Hey, what do you need help with?" So I jumped on on board. 
Beautiful. And uh, I'm enjoying having you here because I think I, I want a lot of questions answered about the AVS ecosystem specifically. So I'll be directing some of those questions to you. Some of the higher level, more general stuff, I'm going to throw it to Sriram. And I think that's actually where we're going to start. This first question that I've got uh, was actually, I think this is kind of a troll question, but I think it's place it's a good place to start anyways. This is from Permaweave. Why should I care about it? Sriram, why should we care about Eigenlayer? Different people care about Eigenlayer for different things. If you are a builder, you know, it uh, opens up an opportunity for you to go build new things without having to secure a trust network on your own. You can build arbitrary new protocols on Eigenlayer. That's why you should care about it. If you're a staker, you're staking in Ethereum, you're already putting your ETH at risk in validating the Ethereum protocol, might as well contribute security to other protocols and earn some rewards because of that. If you're a node operator, you're already running services for Ethereum validation or some other chain validation. One of the big problems as an operator is every new chain that you validate, you have to sell to a new community of token holders. With Eigenlayer, what we are able to do is the same community, many, many operations. So that's the value proposition to the operators. If you are building a rollup in the Ethereum ecosystem, you may be bottlenecked by cost and bandwidth and the economics and EigenDA, which is on Eigenlayer, is a solution that we're offering for you. That's the value proposition to the different sites. Beautiful. A couple of these questions, or maybe some of them, will actually be um, in the same spirit, and so I'll ask them both at once. And these next ones, Nima, are going to you. Uh, Yudai Suzuki, Reblock.eth, and also uh, Niski. First question, what are some unique use cases using Eigenlayer? And then the second question, it's unclear how much need there will be for AVSs beyond the early handful of examples. Where will the demand come from? I think the spirit of this question is, what are the flavors of AVSs? What are the different types of services that can come from these things? How do we even know that there is a there there? Nima, maybe you can take this one. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, right off the bat, um, a few things that are you know, uniquely enabled uh, by the protocol, right? Uh, let's just say bridging, right? The economic security that that we're uh, dealing with here um, can just enable much more um, secure protocols um, to enable uh, cross-chain activities. Um, the other thing that I'm personally really excited about um, is the idea of coprocessors, right? Um, where you have some crypto economic bond, but in terms of what the actual functionality of the coprocessor ends up doing, whether it's generic or hyper-specialized, um, that suddenly gets enabled by any L2 or even on the L1 itself, right? Um, uh, th those are just a couple ones. Um, but uh, in terms of um, another one that's like really interesting, I think, um, is what uh, uh, Witness Chain is doing, right? With, with the proof of location and uh, the fraud proof network, right? Um, you can have, um, you can tap into the power of uh, the Ethereum network to effectively. Uh, deploy um, a, a trust-minimized uh, fraud-proof watcher, as opposed to having each L2 itself claiming that they're uh, providing fraud-proofing fraud service for you as well. So I think that's going to make the community of, of fraud-proofing any kind of optimistic system very much more robust. Mm -hmm. So one, one, one thing I would add to that is, uh, you know, a little bit of a high-level response. Uh, you know, when people think of the modular uh, paradigm, the modular paradigm is chains where integrated solutions for all the different things that need to be done on applications inside that chain. But 
the modeler paradigm is, oh, maybe there are different modules. Maybe there is a data availability module. Maybe there's a consensus module and so on. And normally when people think about the modular landscape, they think of maybe there are three modules, right? Maybe there is an ordering, maybe there is a consensus, maybe there is a, um, a settlement layer, uh, a data availability, some very few handful of modules. Our vision is a little bit different. You know, if you look at the cloud era, you see in, in on cloud, there are thousands of thriving software as a service solutions, which are basically like very hyper-specialized, focused services that if you're building a consumer application, for example, you, you know, and examples of these SaaS services include like, you know, I want to offer a database as a service. There are tens or even hundreds of databases as a service. The reason is there are different types of databases, different types of you know, there's a SQL database, there's a NoSQL database, and all these different, uh, some optimized for AI, some optimized for different purpose, and so on. So you have these hyper-specialized software-as-a-service solutions, and what you do today when you're building an end-user application is just concatenate a few of these software-as-a-service solutions and then only build what components don't exist. That becomes a consumer application. That's our vision for what crypto applications look, look like. They, these... Uh, applications consume a bunch of services that are built on Eigenlayer, say, and then tie all of them together and then offer it as a consumer application. So what might this be? And, and Nima gave like some of the categories we are seeing a lot of interest interaction. But the broader picture is you can think of, let's say, roll-up services, right? So, you know, you're a roll-up, you know, Ethereum is very deeply into the roll-up uh, roadmap. What are the problems that roll-ups are facing? Can we kind of ways, find ways to solve it? Can we find ways to do sequencing instead of having a single central sequencer? Can we have decentralized sequencing? Altlayer is doing its version of it. Espresso is doing a different version of it. You can have, um, you know, watchtowers, which is how do you know that the rollups doing what it is saying it's doing? When you had a couple of big rollups, then of course you can just, um, you know, there is a lot of extrinsic incentives. Everybody running block explorers, watching the network, you know, optimism, arbitrum. A few networks people can watch. But if there are thousands of these networks, are who's going to be watching? You need actually dedicated resources to be watching and incentives to make sure that they're doing the job that they're supposed to be doing. So that's watching. Then you have bridging. Like there's fragmentation of liquidity across L2s. We, you know, you guys have discussed this a lot in the show. So how do we solve it? You know, can we have instantaneous bridging across these L2s? Can we have new kinds of um uh Finality services. I, I I come to finality usually. The sequencer tells me like, hey, you know, it's final, or like, hey, there is a. I, I promise you, but instead, can you have economic finality? Can you have MEV protection solutions? Can you have an encrypted mempool like what Shutter is building? These are all examples of the rollup adjacent services, like some services that I can just integrate in as a rollup, and then I get better as a rollup. This is one category which you know, meta category, I would say we're seeing a lot of traction. But there's lots of other like verticals or meta categories we're also seeing. Nima mentioned coprocessors. The idea of a coprocessor is you're sitting in Ethereum. I want to enhance the functionality beyond what like I can, functions I can call inside the EVM. Can I call an AI? And then I'm sitting inside Ethereum L1, right? Call an AI and say, hey, you know, run like the previous, for example, I've run a DEX and I say that, my price is now adjusted. How much price I take as on Uniswaps adjusted based on the competitive dynamic between how much sushi is charging, how much other DEXs are charging, and then I adjust my prices up and down. 
the intelligent DeFi, for example, can can happen if you have a processor like co-processor like that. Maybe you want to run a command which is actually like um, you know uh, something that normally run only on a Linux machine. So that that would be a general purpose co-processor. Maybe you want to run a command which is a SQL server, like I just call a thing and say that hey load this database, a query to the database and give me the response. And I want that back on Ethereum. So these are the kinds of examples we're seeing inside co-processors. But there are other categories like cryptography, like can I run more advanced cryptographic like solutions? Why do we need this? Because, you know, blockchains are usually like transparent ledgers. Uh, they, that makes it verifiable, but, you know, there's a trade-off against privacy. So I want to have private, but verifiable systems can I split the secret or information across the many nodes, right? So you need deep access into the distributed system, into the consensus to, to change it. Could be secure multi-party systems, trusted execution environments, fully homomorphic encryption, um, these types of categories that we're seeing on, uh, on ILR. So these are some of the broad categories. The one thing which, you know, which is we haven't seen built already, but we've seen proposals is how to modulate some uh, commitments on Ethereum L1 itself. All these other things are outside of Ethereum L1, but I'm a block proposer on Ethereum L1. Can I promise that I can do a pre-confirmation for a transaction I include in an L2? I'm staked, so I, I tell you as a kind of like a block proposer who's going to propose the next block, I promise to you that, hey, when my slot comes, I am going to include your transaction so the L2 can have an instant confirmation. Mm. with economic security. So these are the kind of like range of things that we're seeing. It's We did not invent all these categories. Most of these categories came de novo out of permissionless innovation. And that's what's really fascinating. About this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but one of the things that I think really gets people's imaginations going about Eigenlayer is there it's pretty boundless. The design space is pretty boundless. But that also makes, that leads into my next question here from Ethan uh, Lipman. Uh, if we have such a boundless design space, and I'm assuming that also goes into the fee structure that these AVSs charge, how will AVS re- rewards payouts work? If they can charge their fees in their own kind of network and their own token and ultimately goes down to the ETH staker on the layer one, what's like the supply chain of value flows from fees charged on the AVS network while they're, that while the application is being its business? going down to the ETH staker who has restaked their Ether. Uh, is that a NEMA question or is that a, a three-round question? I'll let Shriram uh, take the first stab at this, but uh, I'll chime in with anything he hasn't covered. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So the, um, the idea is that, you know, there is an AVS consumer. Like imagine an AVS, like something concrete as an Oracle, right? This is an Oracle. So an AVS consumer is an DAP that is calling the Oracle, right? So that's, that's where it is starting but the dap itself has a user right so i'm i'm calling a swap which or a lending protocol which needs to call an oracle that oracles now like triggering uh, you know an eigenlayer avs oracle and that or so there's a fee that is being paid to the oracle so the oracle accumulates all these fees in a pot and the oracle has a certain obligation to pay some fees to the eigenlayer stakers which is specified by the avs model for example, it says that, hey, for this much amount of stake, I'm willing to pay this much amount of ETH or this much amount of my token emissions. And that is paid periodically to the stakers and operators. So essentially, it comes from either the user to the DAP, the DAP to the 
to the AVS, the AVS to the staker uh, and or operator. And it looks like it's a lot of layers. And like some people complain that this could be a big problem for um, the uh, this kind of an eco- modular economy. But I think that's simply not true from our experience in the cloud. Like each consumer application in the cloud integrates 15 SaaS services in the backend. These are all abstracted out that, you know, as an end user of a particular application, you wouldn't even know that they're using all these things in the backend. But they are, and they have like, you know, different periods and settlement periods for when they pay these fees to these SaaS services. Something's a monthly subscription, something's a pay as a pay as you go. All of these things are happening in the back end. And that's roughly why we think that it is going to be okay that you have more complex value flows. Because our bet here when we're talking about permissionless innovation is really specialization. Right? This is really what drove the SaaS economy is and if you just look at the broad arc of civilization, it is bends towards more specialization. We all become more and more specialized in what we produce, but more and more generalized in what we consume, right? And so these AVSs are going to be exactly the same. They are going to be very specialized in what we produce, what they produce, but end users are going to consume many of these things and pass a little bit of value to all of these. And actually, this makes for a very much more efficient economy because you know, if you ask the question, which is going to be the best uh, chain, it's a very hard question to answer. If you ask the question, who's going to build the fastest uh, NoSQL database? It's a much, much more narrow question. You can kind of zoom into like, oh, this guy has this experience, that experience. It's a B2B system. And then actually they can go and build it. So that's why I think it is Okay, not only okay, it is actually great that you know you have hyper specialization and a sharing of value across all these layers through the modular stack. Mm-hmm. Nima, anything you want to add there? I, I'm just fascinated by the fact that um, this this permissionless market uh, is going to enable um, all the fa- various flavors of mm-hmm. services. Uh, I just view it as you know we've seen uh, distributed systems uh, these backend infra providers be able to do what they do over the past 20, 30 years, right? Um, except now you have this crypto economic angle attached to it um, where you're building on a substrate that as long as there's a market for something, no one's going to be able to tell you you can't kind of provide this, this functionality. So um, it's, it's very exciting. Yeah. I think maybe part of the spirit of the question is that like one of the reasons why everyone is getting excited about restaking is because we love Ether and we love staking Ether and we love the yields and we get more of it this way. Um, but then there's also a tension, I think, maybe at least I suspect, in AVS networks that also have a token where maybe a lot of the economy in that AVS network is the token and then that AVS network is paying in that token, but then the ETH stakers want ETH, not the token. And so in order to pay restakers ETH, that token has to be sold, which goes against the incentives of the AVS network. Uh, and, so, and also then like are ETH restakers just collecting a bunch of tokens as the yield? Like how, how are, do you have any clarity that you can provide here on this one, Sriram? Yeah, I mean, this is the power of uh, permissionless markets is, you know, we can't say whether this is going to be the market, you know, each stakers demand that they get only paid in ETH. We will mm-hmm. see that that's what happens. If we see that, yeah, actually each stakers want all kinds of liquid tokens, then that's what will happen. If we see that actually each stakers want or are willing to take even locked 
AVS tokens with a, with a kind of like a vesting. Mm. That will happen. The the thing is, we are very unopinionated about it, and this is a this is an emer- we view this as an emergent property of what you know. It, it's like you know you can dial back you know f- say four years before the DeFi summer, and then you go ask you know Justin or Vitalik or somebody else at the Ethereum or Timbeco or somebody at the Ethereum Foundation, what can ETH be used for, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It can be used for you know in a DeFi protocol like this. It can be used in a in a DeFi in a, to provide liquidity provision, but to earn like some farm, like you know, all of these things are possible, and we'll probably see a combination of all of these things. And also, stakers might segment by preferences. There may mm. be stakers who are very purist and they just want to take ETH, or they're not able to take for legal or other reasons. Anything else? There'll be stakers who'll take all these other things. But going back to your to the kind of high-level thing about is there a conflict? I, I think there is no like the idea is that the each staking, if it is beneficial to an AVS, they're gonna use it. If each staking is not beneficial to an AVS and their own token staking is more beneficial, they absolutely should use their own mm. token staking. We are not taking a kind of a any opinionated position on it. In fact, Eigenlayer itself, the contracts are returned to enable dual staking and multi-quorum staking. So you can stake ETH, you're building an Oracle, you can have your own token, and you can have ETH staking. You can say that, hey, I'm borrowing some amount of security from a neutral substrate and some amount of security from an opinionated, like aligned substrate. It's actually like game theoretically very interesting and useful to actually do that because you know the, the, the neutral substrate is neutral and therefore more externally verifiable. The neutral substrate can, but can only be slashed on specific violations. Whereas my own token holders have exposure to just you know what is happening in in my system, and that is a different kind of crypto economics. And actually, promoting this is what we think is the best thing. Right. Maybe the question uh, that question specifically is like how to couple the income being generated from AVSs and then transfer it over to the restakers, the ETH restakers. Maybe that question is actually more appropriate to ask the LRT um, uh, level of the of the stack because they are the people actually more or less in charge of these flows. So maybe that's actually, yeah, if you, uh, Eigenlayer is unopinionated, then Eigenlayer is not the actual place to target that question. Maybe, maybe this is a question for the LRTs. Yeah, we are also seeing interesting kind of payment management type services emerging. Mm-hmm. Somebody may say, hey, you know, subscribe to my, you stake, you know, you don't even have to go through an LRT and subscribe to my payment management service. I'll collect mm-hmm. all these tokens. I'll do an RFQ auction. And then later I'll give you like, you know, your mm-hmm. tokens in ETH. So these we view as, again, emergent structures right. rather mm-hmm. than like enshrined opinions. So absolutely the LRTs, therefore, not only uh, LRT is a liquid restaking token, it's a token mm-hmm. that represents a position on Eigenlayer, but also represents an opinion on what set of operators should be used, what set of mm-hmm. AVSs you should stake to, but also what rewards you want to collect and how you want to do treasury management of these rewards. So the dimensions of opinion of a liquid restaking token are far higher than a liquid staking token. Right. Which is you stake stake in Ethereum, you're complying by protocol, you have no price fixing abilities, you just take what the protocol does. So Ethereum is this rigid, solid underlying substrate. Whereas Eigenlayer is this very, you know, anything can happen kind of a substrate <laughs> on top. So 
It's funny that you say that because uh, there's a the variety of opinions that liquid restaking tokens could have, which is good because there's so goddamn many of them. There's like 15 of them out there. So uh, maybe we'll you will see all those opinions expressed. Nima, these next set of questions I want to ask uh, to you, and these are all about um, the logistics of AVSs. Um, three questions here, kind of all in the same vibe. Can an AVS be aware about the state of other AVSs? If an AVS creates a slashing event or slashing events, how can other AVSs um, be aware of that and become aware about the change in collateral for that's being shared among AVSs? And then are the scenario are there scenarios in which uh, one AVS, the slashing event for one AVS could trigger the slashing event of another AVS? Maybe you could take in these and however you want yeah. to. Yeah, I'll start with the first one. Um, so the background image that uh, Shriram painted is these services talking to each other, right? Mm-hmm. These AVSs. Um, so in the same capacity, um, you can imagine how an AVS talking to another AVS has the capability to read some state, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now there's like on-chain contracts, there's off-chain like no, uh, software being run, right? But depending on the exact nature of what is happening for an ABS, right? Sure, you can say like ABS A, uh, their off-chain contract, whatever the operators are running, can watch for some state change on ABS B's contract, right? So there's no limitation in terms of like who is aware of what's and what's happening, right? Um, which I guess leads to the the second question a little bit, in that the the design for slashing, uh, which is a feature we're going to come out with uh, later this year. Um, uh, are still, uh, you know, um, we're, we're thinking very thoroughly about how that's exactly going to work mechanically um, to reduce the risk as much as possible. Um, but then again, um, if an AVS uh, operator can read a slashing event on another AVS, right, it can choose to um, react to that under whatever uh, kind of, uh, you know, path or like uh, behavior like, like they choose to implement. So um, it's, it's, as, it's nearly like almost entirely up to the application develop, ABS developers' uh, discretion in terms of how they want to um, take slashing as a mechanism and as a reactionary thing into account. Um, and I guess the third thing, which is uh, can one slashing event uh, have an effect on others, um, that would probably be a, fun- uh, a function or it depends on how the slashing mechanism uh, ends up working in its final version, right? And in, in, the, in the version that we're going to release. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add one thing to all of these things is every all of these events are reported back to Ethereum. A, Eigenlayer is an Ethereum-centric system, right? So any AVS, which is actually, there may be AVSs which don't interact on a kind of like a routine basis with Ethereum, but all of the AVS state is reported back to Ethereum on a periodic basis. Whenever it's reported, it's that on Ethereum. It's, it's on the Ethereum contracts. So now, like, I can write a contract which is dependent on all these other things. Like, for example, whenever a slashing is triggered on any AVS, that's going to be reported to the eigenlayer core contracts. Mm-hmm. Because it's reported to the eigenlayer core contracts, I can read from another AVS that, yes, that has actually happened. And so I can react to it on a much more instantaneous basis. So this is really why we think that you know, having one coordination engine for all these services is the best architecture rather than saying, hey, I have an LR. Let's say, you know, so this is a misconception that people have. 
that, oh, you know, now that the Eigen layer is there and it's allowing LSTs to stake, somebody else can build another layer which takes LRTs and then allows them to stake and so on. But the, the, the right architecture is actually a much more integrated architecture, which knows what's happening across all the different layers. In fact, this is one of the reasons we, we keep saying that it'll be even better in a future when Ethereum can integrate Eigenlayer more natively because the cross-communication between Ethereum and uh, Eigenlayer can be even tighter. Like how much of security is used by other things? How much of security is reserved for Ethereum? All of this communication can be much, much tighter if it's in the same system. But inside Eigenlayer, all the state is on a common Eigenlayer contract. It knows when like your slashing has been triggered on any AVS. It knows when state updates have been made on any AVS. So all of this is routed through a common contract, which is a common source of information. And like Nima said, you can pull from it as, as often as you want. But I think in the worst case, pe- you know, all the AVS contracts will pull at least at you know something like a few days period because you don't want to be desynchronized more than that. And that's the kind of challenge or fraud proof period in Eigenlayer. Moving on to a question from cloudy.eth. Shout out Christy. That's our community manager at Bankless. What happens if an Eigenlayer AVS operator with delegated LSTs gets slashed? What happens with the LSTs? Where do they go? Sure, I'm going to take this. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you know, so there are two types of slashing that can happen on Eigenlayer. So Nima was mentioning that we have, uh, you know, upcoming... uh, designs on the full slashing mechanism, but there are two kinds of slashing. One is burning, right? You just burn burn the uh, stake. The other one is redistribution, right? And the simple version to burn would be to just burn the, uh, you know, LST. This has some kind of, you know, different kinds of consequences for different people, but one could also think of the... Uh, Actually, what is happening in the eigenlayer contracts is the LST is not burnt. The LST is frozen into the contract state. So you can't touch it. You can't do anything with it. It's just stuck. It's like a stuck uh, token. And um, but, but that's what actually happens in our V1 design. But we are going through some thinking on the different slashing architectures. But the, the thing is, there's also redistribution. And redistribution is I take the LST and give it to the harm party. Slash from the bad guy and give it to the harm party. So the other guy has the LST. So that's that's what happens. So that's why when an AVS is, is whitelisting which LSTs to use, they should have some measure of trust on the LST because you know that's what's getting handed over across the different parties. There is a more sophisticated architecture on burning, which would be to like exchange the LST for ETH and then burn ETH. But you know, uh we do expect that slashing is, uh, you know, a rare event because operators have to be malicious and they know they're going to lose their ETH. So they're not over-optimizing for burning ETH in this scenario. <laughs> Seamus on Farcaster, orange Seamus.eth asks, how will delegators, operators, and AVSs adequately be able to calculate risk? The problems here will be incredibly dynamic and involve unclear dependencies. I'm not sure it's solvable, let alone by all parties routinely. So I think it's a little bit of just the uh, unknown unknowns about risks question. Uh, Nima, you want to take this one? Yeah, this is a super interesting question. Um, a lot of us have, have spent some, quite some time thinking about. Um, and I guess to, to approach this, we can take a look at it from the perspective of each of these different stakeholders, right? Um, for example, um, as an AVS developer, what does risk, risk means to you, right? Um, 
Is it um, the operators that are serving your AVS? Um, is it you know what LSDs they have delegated to them? Um, in terms of uh, restakers, um, which operators do I want to give my uh, stake to? Right? Um, what is the distribution of the operators that look like uh, for me to be able to assess who's riskier and who's not? Um, and, and in terms of operators, um, they also have this duty of being able to, um, or, or wanting to rather, look at the nature of an AVS and being uh, and saying, how complex is a logic uh, for serving this application, right? And how much does it, how much load does it bear on, for example, my physical infrastructure that I'm running, right? Am I gonna run into, um, you know, bottlenecks that affect my ability to run another AVS? Um, so um, all these all these risks um, or things that um, the various stakeholders have to take into account essentially compound, right? And depending on how you slice and dice an exact um, combination um, of these stakeholders, you're looking at a different picture. Mantle, formerly known as BitDAO, is the first DAO-led Web3 ecosystem, all built on top of Mantle's first core product, the Mantle Network, a brand new high-performance Ethereum Layer 2 built using the OP stack, but uses EigenLayer's data availability solution instead of the expensive Ethereum Layer 1. Not only does this reduce Mantle Network's gas fees by 80%, but it also reduces gas fee volatility, providing a more stable foundation for Mantle's applications. The Mantle Treasury is one of the biggest DAO-owned treasuries, which is seeding an ecosystem of projects from all around the Web3 space for Mantle. Mantle already has sub-communities from around Web3 onboarded, like Game7 for Web3 Gaming and Bybit for TVL and Liquidity and OnRamps. So if you want to build on the Mantle network, Mantle is offering a grants program that provides milestone-based funding to promising projects that help expand, secure, and decentralize Mantle. If you want to get started working with the first DAO-led Layer 2 ecosystem, check out Mantle at mantle.xyz and follow them on Twitter at 0xMantle. Are you launching a token? Is it already live? How are you managing the legal and tax for providing token awards for your team? Toku simplifies everything about managing token grant compensation, and you can get started with them for free. You'll have access to top-notch legal and tax support to handle the distribution and management of tokens for your team. Toku caters to every step in the process, from user-friendly legal templates for granting tokens to tracking vesting periods and calculating withholding taxes. Toku understands every grant structure, token purchase agreements, restricted token awards, restricted token units, token options, and all the other ones. Toku is already simplifying this today, for leading companies like Protocol Labs, DYDX Foundation, Mina Foundation, and many more. You can learn more about how Toku can help you streamline your token management and get started for free. Visit Toku at toku.com bankless or click the link in the description below. Moving on to a question from a token terminal. How do they, this might, this, there might be no answer here. This might be a market forces thing, but we'll see. Um, how do they see, they's you guys, Eigenlayer, see the take rate in the ecosystem? For example, $1 paid to buy an AVS, how many cents goes to restakers? How many cents goes to operators? How many cents goes to Eigenlayer? Uh, Nima, do you have an answer here? Um, this is still... Uh... Like being being thought out, um, and we were taking a lot of uh, community feedback from you know what AVS developers like to see, um, what operators are comfortable with, like what ranges you know they're 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 they think is reasonable um, across what type of assets. Um, so that's because it's such a nascent space. Uh, it's still something like we're actively figuring out. Um, yeah, and that's that's where, that's where we're at. 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, there are dimensions of pricing and that we are thinking through the dimensions also carefully. For example, uh, pricing need not be only for stake. Pricing should also be for the complexity of computation. So we're thinking through like a, all the other systems that exist and see like how we can absorb some of the best practices from there and also failure modes. For example, one of the things that happened in uh, Cosmos Interchange Security is, you know, operators are running these other services by taking a cut of the fee, other chains, uh, by taking a cut of the fee. And if the fee volume is low, you're expending a lot of energy, but you're not getting like, that much fee. Mm. So, you know, we should charge not only for stake, but also for computation. And so, and when you're talking about stake, there are also dimensions of stake where, you know, is my stake just going to be burnt for for this because that's a different risk versus is my stake going to be redistributed because there may be a different kind of incentive for that? Is my stake, is my entire stake burnt when I make a mistake in an AVS versus is only a portion of my stake burnt when I mistake make a mistake in the Xavius. So there's lots of different dimensions here and pricing will have to reflect all of this. So mm. it is still under like uh, active design on the and specifics of how the payments get distributed across all of these things. Yeah, and, and to add on top of that, the, the reason why I said we're still so early in how this might look is because it's a problem that I think the broader industry is thinking about, right? When you look at Solana and like, you know, uh, fee markets or like, you know, the concept of the discussion around multi-market, multi-dimensional fees, right? Like the notion of what a fee even is around what type of resources, who is providing those resources, all of that is, yeah, it's, it's just being explored. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Um, I remember that it's still, I think, an ongoing conversation, even when we talk about resource pricing inside of the EVM as well. Right. Um, Thady.eth asks, how long does it take to unstake uh, and then I'll add myself, why is there an unstaking waiting period at all? Uh, Sri Ram, you want to take this one? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it takes seven days to unstake today. And why is there a seven-day period? Is because, you know, when you stake and there are and you provide security to services, what we don't want is you stake, you provide security to your service, attack the service, unstake, and then go swap and get out. Right? So unstaking should have a lag greater than the lag within which any misbehavior will be detected. Mm-hmm. That's why we have the unstaking period. But it provides a un, um, a unintended, and you know, maybe not that in an unintended from our end, an unintended benefit, which is actually fund safety. So you stake a lot of funds in Eigenlayer, and you know, one of the things you have to be worried about, what if it gets hacked? What if people just like, take all the ETH and go, that would be like an absolute disaster. One of the things that protects it is to withdraw any unit of money out of the eigenlayer contracts is going to take a week. I know already you've queued the withdrawal. You have to wait a week. This slows everything down to human time scale. No monitoring, there is pausing, there is a security council comprised of you know, uh, 13 members who are outside the eigenlayer core team all of that can actually kind of come in and step in to do something in case there is a problem. But that's that's a kind of like an unintended side effect of uh, the core reason, which is for fraud proofs. <laughs> Lcoco.eth uh, writes great songs. Sometimes we put them into the roll-up. He asks, 
how big do we think the premium will be that AVSs put on solo stakers? Is there a good enough way to determine who is a solo staker? He's asking because there's uh, this is the one way that I can see that Eigenlayer will actually increase Ethereum's decentralization. Um, Sriram, do you have an answer here? Yeah, what premium AVSs will put? Like I said, we are like a little bit of an open market type uh, project, so we don't know what will happen. But there are clearly, absolutely clearly, there are places where, you know, AVS is just one more decentralization than just one more stake, right? You know, I want to sequence transactions for a private rollup. I want to do like, uh, a, you know, where the, so the high level heuristic is where I cannot attribute false and slash for them. More stake doesn't mean much. But many independent parties consistently verifying and coming to agreement is actually the benefit. So services which have that structure, imagine I take a secret and then spread it on like many, many nodes. If it turns out Coinbase is all these nodes, then like, you know, I didn't like spread my secret to anybody. Like the guy has all the copies of the secret. So it's useless to like, when I'm doing secret sharing, when I'm doing sequencing, essentially for any non-slashable faults, I want to have a decentralized committee. And okay, so that's that's the types of things where like uh, types of ABSs where they would absolutely want more decentralized operators. The question is how much, uh, you know, so one question is how much premium, which I said, you know, it's, it's emergent from the free market. But the other one is how do you detect whether somebody is a solo staker? I think this is a harder question, but it's one of those questions where, you know, uh, Nima mentioned earlier, like one of the services building, which is a proof of location. And, you know, you have to be in, you know, many different locations. So there's a geographic, uh, you know, um, diversity benefit, for example, that that itself. So witness itself is an AVS, but there could be other AVSs, which not only track like operator location, but do something more opinionated. It could be an Oracle that is basically a decentralization Oracle, which looks at all the statistics of, you know, stake distribution, you know, historic uh, correlation with exchange wallets, all of these things, and then puts in like a Merkle root of these are the most likely to be decentralized. And this is not, uh, you know, opinionated from the eigenlayer point of view, but this is a service that somebody else can say, yeah, I know I trust this opinion and therefore like I'm going to recruit stakers from this set or operators from this set. Again, emergent downstream rather than entry. Yeah. Something that I think is particularly interesting on this front is, uh, when you have solo stakers, irrespective of the kind of hardware that they have, right? Um, one thing that we're noticing is a lot of networks uh, rely on this uh, component of a keeper or, or a relayer, right? Um, where the computational bandwidth of what you're actually relaying is not super high, but depending on where you're located, um, you might want to have like many, many of them spread across all over the world, right? So the more of those you have within your system, maybe it's latency you care about, maybe it's like censorship resistance, whatever it is. Um, if they can, if you can go through multiple routes from point A to point B through these, um, you know, lightweight, maybe not even lightweight solo stakers, um, that's a very emergent property as well. Mm -hmm. I think maybe part of your guys' answer is that it's actually not necessarily being the binary of, oh, you are a solo staker, you are one person, but it's more about, um, how much net decentralization do you add to the system when we measure decentralization in a variety of different ways. 
Um, and cause there is no good way of just like being a solo taker actually only has, is only one bit of information. Like there's other bits of information there. Um, okay. So there's four questions here. They're all about the same thing. You, we kind of have touched on this, but I want to dive headfirst into this subject. Jenia asks, how do they respond about the risks of restaking being a daisy chain of potential risks? Clairvoyant asks, what doomsday scenarios have the team simulated or envisioned? Chainlink God says, how does or should the Eigen restaking ecosystem approach risk management, particularly managing the second or third order effects of LRTs, LRT5, cascading slashing conditions, AVS selection priorities, leverage caps, et cetera? And lastly, what matter CFA says, it looks like a lot of rehypothecation in TradFi. How do you quantify the risk? I think this is what people's like first gut reaction goes to when somebody explains what restaking is. Like, oh, you take your ETH and then you stake it again. And then you can also keep on doing that over and over and over again. And people are like, oh, okay, great. So like, you know, cascading liquidations. Um, what I'm sure you guys have answered this many, many, many times. What's like the simple way to explain um, the, the, the scenario here? Not that this isn't a risk, but just like yeah. how do we provide more knowledge about what's going on? Yeah, I, I, I think there is, uh, you know, we put out a detailed risk document. So I think that's maybe a good good place to point it. Uh, we can put it up on the I'll put it YouTube up on, link on after, after, afterwards. Yeah. I think that'll be awesome. But um, the high level thing is, number one, uh, the, the thinking of, I think the term restaking is what throws people off. If, you know, the, the exact same concept, for example, already existed for many years in Cosmos called interchain security, right? It's called interchain security. So nobody thought of the exactly the same questions. But here's the the thing that when you stake, um, so the, the, the right way to think of this is shared security. So imagine there are 1,000 protocols, each of which can have $1 million staked. Okay, so this is one world. Another world, and you take the same fees and then now aggregate them into a $1 billion pool, which is restaked across 1,000 protocols. Which world is better? Let's say in the first world, um, to attack a protocol, you need $1 million capital. And then if you do attack it, you're probably going to lose half of that $1 million or something like that. In the second world, to attack any one protocol, you need $1 billion capital. When people are comparing the two scenarios, usually what they're doing is they're, they're thinking there are 1,000 protocols with $1 billion each. And then on the right side, there is 1,000 pro protocols with $1 billion restake. But that's just not the right comparison. At mm -hmm. the same fee parity, if there are 1,000 protocols each paying a certain fee to maintain $1 million stake, you pay the same fee, you can actually sustain a $1 billion in a shared security model. So security is growing as you get more protocols. It's a very like obvious thing once you state it like this, but that's what's happening. Okay, so you have much bigger security that is supporting all these things. Okay, now you do lose something in the second world. So the second world is better in the obvious sense that to attack any one protocol, you need like 1 billion. But there is a little bit of a deficiency in the second world, which is there is no unique attribution of this 1 billion to any one protocol or you know how much is going to each protocol, which is what is leading to all these questions about oh, you know, I don't know how much I'm getting. There's a lot of risk and all of that. And the way we solve it is by a principle we call attributable security. Attributable security is the following concept. It says that an AVS gets this benefit of pooling, but in addition, AVS can buy 
a particular ability to slash and redistribute a portion of the funds. Let's say AVS1, you know, out of this $1 billion slashable, AVS1 buys $25 million worth of attributable security, which means if something goes wrong on that AVS, the eigenlayer protocol maintains this complex calculation, which is what people are thinking, how, are, how is this going to happen? This is going to be in protocol, in the eigenlayer protocol, maintains what we call a solvency calculation. The calculation ensures that whatever happens, how many other protocols trigger slashing simultaneously, you will be able to redistribute your 25 million, your attributable portion. Now, suddenly all this question about like over leverage and everything else is just simply gone because each AVS has a unique, specified, attributable portion of slashing independent of what happens in all the other AVSs. So this creates compartmentalization. I know exactly what, how much I can redistribute if I slash. Uh, and so this is actually the, I, I, you know, one of the tightest system of crypto economic security. It is not a leverage system with you don't know what leverage is happening, you know, what not like that. It is pooled security. Now, you, so what is the benefit you're getting? The benefit you're getting is in the second world. Now, even though I have only an attributable security of 25 million to attack my protocol, I still need a $1 billion capital. I'm just much, much more secure in the second world than having my own $25 million world pool in the first world. So that's, that's the first picture about shared security and attributable security. This changes the dynamics of how people think about AVSS compartmentalization. So another like point is between eigenlayer, so we can do this inside eigenlayer, but to do this between eigenlayer and Ethereum, because you know we don't build Ethereum, so we have limited interfaces to Ethereum. But the nice thing with Ethereum is Ethereum is actually extremely uh, high security. So there's a lot of stake in Ethereum, $70 billion or whatever today's prices there. But you know, there's a lot of stake in uh, Ethereum and the Ethereum's security requirement is not all of this 70 billion. And this is a whole other like discussion to understand exactly how much security is needed because staking is not fundamentally protecting all the value, all the TVL that is sitting on Ethereum. The staking is only protecting the value in flight in, in Ethereum. So that's a whole detailed discussion. But what happens is Eigenlayer as the amount of assets restaked between Ethereum and Eigenlayer increases, let's say it's 100% of Ethereum stake is restaked on Eigenlayer, Eigenlayer will not sell attributable security for this entire 100%. It'll take a back off, say something like 50% we don't touch. We're only selling insurance for the remaining 50%. So what this does is basically the there is a buffer that's maintained to make sure that Ethereum, it's, it's an accounting for making sure that Ethereum security budget is at least that much, and the remaining is attributed to all these AVSs. So that's the way we deal with that. And then finally, LRTs, right? Initially, when, you know, one year back, we were thinking about LRTs, we were actually worried that, you know, LRTs can have all this financialization and risk. And there is some truth to it, but there's also the other side of it, which is, imagine there are no LRTs. So that's that's how Eigenlayer is natively. There is no liquid restaking position or like a fungible position. But what could happen is I'm a staker. I stake in Ethereum and Eigenlayer. And then now I have a position. And, you know, people want to borrow against this position. So somebody could potentially build a borrowing pro protocol against an Eigenlayer position. 
this position is non-fungible and unique. And, and so the only way, if my position is now liquidated, the only thing that you can do is now you have to go and trigger a withdrawal from eigenlayer. And eigenlayer triggers a withdrawal from Ethereum. So what is happening is, if you did not build a layer of LRT, then anything that's happening in the financialized world has ripples that propagate down into eigenlayer into Ethereum. You have to withdraw that money from eigenlayer. Eigenlayer has to withdraw that money from Ethereum to honor that position. And suddenly the AVS security fluctuates, Ethereum security fluctuates, all of these things happen. With the liquid restaking position, what happens is somebody has an LRT that's being lent and borrowed against. They get liquidated. The other guy just snatches the LRT. There is no impact on eigenlayer or Ethereum. So financialization in a smart contract system is going to happen. And if it is going to happen, how do we mitigate and buffer it against you know, ripples through the system? I think this is the first thing that is already true is LRTs actually create buffering for Eigenlayer and Ethereum. Okay. Now, where is the actual risk? I think the actual risk is in what people call looping, right? You go and you know, deposit an LRT, get ETH, and then go and, you know, or leverage tree staking or leverage staking. That's where actual risks are. So this is now going into, I stake, I, I borrow against an LRT. And so the first thing is, you cannot restake an LRT into Eigenlayer. Like, that's not a thing. This is, again, like some confusion in people's model or understanding of Eigenlayer. I can't just go to go stake in Puffer or something, get an LRT, and then stake the LRT back into Eigenlayer. Eigenlayer doesn't allow for that. So <laughs> that's not a thing. <laughs> okay. So and people are like, oh, I'm going to restake the restake and all this stuff. Like, okay, that's the first, you know, baseline thing. But this could obviously happen in a lending market that I, I take an LRT and then I borrow ETH against it and then I go and stake it and so on. Mm-hmm. And this is basically a miss. Uh, assignment of risk in these lending markets. And that's what we should focus on. Why is this lending market allowing you to borrow an ETH for an LRT with like, you know, only X percent collateralization rather than like Y percent collateralization? Why am I able to loop, loop 50 times rather than only loop two times? So these are the kinds of questions that, you know, we should ask lending markets. This is mispricing of risk in the lending market. It has nothing really to do with Eigenlayer. And so, but we are going to be like putting out some of these modeling things so that people understand what is actually. Mm-hmm. Ema, do you want to add anything to the uh, the daisy chain of risk conversation? That was the two points were pretty much what, yeah, what I was going to say. So Beautiful. Okay. Uh, j- just one more thing on that is smart contract risks, which we didn't oh. talk about, right? Like I, I talked about earlier when talking about the withdrawal lag that the eigenlayer core, you know, each stake is one way it is protected is because of the withdrawal lag because you know there is a time to pause and you know do security console interventions and all of that but on the avs slashing you know avs could have a bug in the sla- slashing contracts that is really only buffered by the veto committee mm-hmm. and initially we are going to have a single veto committee but over time you may have a marketplace of veto committees mm-hmm. like each mm-hmm. each staker and operator decides what kind of like veto committee they want and avs's can work with them only if they agree on the it's like a kind of like a mutually trusted party or like a arbit, mm-hmm. uh, arbitration agreement right so that's that's what yeah. it is. 
Actually, one th- one thing I would say in this discussion is uh, there is probably a misconception around how operators uh, view their position in the ecosystem, right? Um, there will be a sweet spot in terms of how many ABSs they want to opt into um, in contrast to how much risk they will, they're willing to take on, right? Because obviously, if you go beyond this threshold, beyond this like, sweet spot, you're increasing your risk at the you're at the risk of losing yields, right? Using like, if you go down, you can't really uh, have that anymore. So um, the whole concept of, oh yeah, each operator is going to opt into every single ABS out there, probably not the most practical scenario. So um, yeah. On that note, that actually perfectly leads into a question that I have. So this one comes from me. Um, I want to talk about uh, possible design architectures for AVSs that have slashing as like uh, are more permissible slashing. Whereas like, we, I think we talk about AV, many AVS networks and we, the general context that we talk about them is, in, is like we want zero slashing events for which there will be many, many services where like that is the optimum, zero slashing events. But may, maybe there's a landscape to talk about AVS networks in which um, people being slashed is actually a part of the way that the system works and it functions healthily. Like I could, for example, I could imagine if we all remember the old auger design, the uh, the old prediction market, where people would stake their auger tokens on the particular outcome of an event. And if you staked in the minority, you were slashed for being wrong. And it was an Oracle service. And so somebody needed to be slashed in order for the system to work at all. And as a result of this system, we would have had this Oracle a prediction market and uh, this thing would function. Uh, so I could imagine an eigenlayer AVS network like that, where the AVS role is um, an oracle. Uh, and I could imagine there are other AVS constructions in which a normal, functioning, healthily, healthy operating AVS actually has frequent AVS slashing events. And why are we okay with that? Well, because the yield compensates for that and more. Have we thought about sort of these constructions? Uh, uh, Sri Ram, you want to go first? Yeah, I, this is a really, really interesting question. And uh, I should say this is out of scope for our current eigenlayer design. And the reason is, you know, uh, systems like Augur have a tyranny of majority. You know, you slash the minority based on a majority opinion. What if the majority was actually adversarial? Mm-hmm. And then, like, try to impose their like wrong opinion on the minority and get the minority slashed. What really protects Augur and Augur as a system itself doesn't have it. And the reason it doesn't have this problem is they had a way to fork the Augur token if something bad happened. Right. Yeah. And um, you know, this is where this is the boundary that Vitalik has drawn for us. That hey, don't do stuff assuming. You know, Ethereum will fork for you. And I think it's a really good design principle of like, you know, drawing a boundary. So it's one thing to consider AVSs where you could get slashed, you know, a small amount in the normal mode. It's another thing to consider an AVS which has a tyranny of majority. And I think we just simply don't go there. The AVSs should not have a way to slash a minority of people based on the majority opinion because if the majority colludes and tries to take down the minority, then it's kind of like a big systemic instability. Okay. And the other really important property, I think they, so whether AVSs or operators get slashed in a, in a normal mode 
is, is still okay. But I think the main thing that we want to kind of like have as a property of Eigenlayer is that if you're an operator and if you're honest and let's say you can even add honest and effective, then you will not get slashed, right? If you're honest, you should not get slashed as the bar, but you could even like lower that a bit and say, oh, if you're honest and effective, which means diligent and doing your stuff, then you should never get slashed. And I think that is the, the because that's what retains all the properties that we want about, let's say, an LRT, right? When somebody's holding an LRT, what are they actually holding? They are saying this, is, this would be equal to one ETH if I trust that the operators are honest. That's a really, really nice kind of a mental model that if I trust these operators are right, then this will be equal to one, one ETH because, you know, all these other things won't happen. But if we start loading un, uncalculatable risks into this layer, so this is, again, like a very sharp boundary. We only want to do validation services, and we only want to do validation services where risks are what we call endogenous. If you are an operator, it should be under your control not to get slashed. Mm. That's a very, very, very important property. Because once it's like that, then all these like cascades and problems that people have about like Eigenlayer, they don't show up. But if you don't do it like that, then you have all kinds of problems and the system kind of like blows up in ways that you can't predict. Okay, so that that sounds like a very firm line that you are drawing, that you are saying Eigenlayer will not cross that line. It will not cross the line of uh, allowing for effective, honest uh, uh, operators to get slashed. To be slashed, absolutely. I think that is, that is, what, that is what makes it uh, all the rest of the properties of the system to actually work. Okay. Okay. And I think you also kind of implied that that same line is the line that Vitalik was labeling in his blog post, Don't Overload Ethereum Consensus. That's correct. In fact, the example he gave was a USD to Brazil Oracle and and something crazy happens in Brazil and then you have Brazil North and Brazil South. And now, you know, a majority is voting with Brazil North and a minority is voting with Brazil South, but actually they were all honest. And then suddenly, you know, you're slashing all the guys who voted on Brazil South based on the Brazil North guys. And then like, you know, it's, it's right. a, you know, tens of billions of dollars of each slashed for just being honest and doing your job, but, but just not knowing that this thing can happen. Mm-hmm. So that's the overload that overloads Ethereum social consensus, because then what happens is right. now, you know, do, do we save them? Do we not save them? The shelling point's not clear and it just like confuses everybody. So that's mm-hmm. why we draw the line there is because Objective attributable slashing for malicious operators. That is what Eigenlayer is intended for. Intended for, yes. And also Eigenlayer is also intended for permissionless innovation. And yeah. at some point, will, won't these two things collide? Like okay. if, if, if Eigenlayer is point. permissionless, can Great I go point. build my subjective auger layer? AVS? Yeah. <laughs> great, uh, great question. So the way uh, we mediate this is by the veto committee. Mm. So, the, you know, if I'm a staker, right, look at what I'm trusting. I'm trusting that either the AVS is correct or the AVS contracts are correct or the veto committee is good. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm trusting when I'm opting into the system. That's the flow of trust. And so it is up to the, the, the slashing veto committee to make sure that it is able to understand and like veto the slashing decisions correctly. So which means it ha- also has an onboarding function because it needs to know what is it going to slash or not slash when such a decision comes up. So there is an onboarding decision which sits with the veto committee. So there is a bit of permissioning there. 
But over time, like I said, we are going to have not one enshrined veto committee, but intersubjective veto committees. Each of them, you know, there can be different groups that different stakers trust, and you know, they mediate different oper- you know, different AVSs. And what this does is, in in that world, each of those veto committees still needs to onboard those AVSs because that's how. Because they are in a in a position of mediating this dispute, they need to know what they're mediating. That needs to be like objective and concrete. And to the users of the AVS, you need a kind of like a clear understanding when you will, you know, get slashed and when you won't get slashed. And the problem with the majority uh, kind of a so so in in a permissionless world, it's possible that some veto committee, you know, onboards services which have this kind of properties. But those committees, you know, will be less trusted and less stake will be staked through them. That's what will happen. So the, the thing is, by, allo- by allowing for most of the genuine use cases of, you know, eigenlayer, which don't create these risks through the normal mode, you prevent the risk because most of the yield is from genuine useful services, which think through these risks very carefully. And somebody is going to build these things which don't think through this carefully. And we want that to be exposed to the staker. And the way it's exposed to the staker is none of the big slashing veto committees are going to onboard that AVS. Now I have to go and trust some other random veto committee and like, hey, why are you doing that? So that is how we stratify risk and make sure that people understand what they're opting into. Beautiful. That that actually has given me a ton of clarity about, about this whole system. Uh, getting back onto the uh, the questions here as we wrap up, getting closer towards the end, I'm going to put these two questions together. Um, Arun asks, will they eventually switch to their native token staking to secure the network, or is it always going to be staked ETH, always? And also Green Curry asks, what's the point of the token? So now we are getting into the theoretical eigenlayer token. Uh, well, yeah, theoretical we'll, we'll, eigenlayer token doesn't exist, so we'll we'll re- review this question if and when it exists. All right, so we're we're punting on the on this question. Uh, that brings me to my next uh, my next. Well, but just one one important thing: the sure. reason we have each staking as the kind of central thing in eigenlayer is, you know, this is a this is important to understand. For you know, I see a lot of people, for example, asking. Hey, when you have a lot of different DA layers and fees go to all these DA layers, what is the role of ETH? Mm-hmm. And I just want to like take a minute to answer this here. And the role of ETH, in our view, is ETH is the money that is programmable. Right? You know, you, you have the famous phrase "programmable money," right? So ETH is programmable money, and what that means is, as ETH becomes programmable money, it goes into all these different rollups and layer twos and other places where it is being used. And because these are different, necessarily distinct zones, when a lot of the risk is now priced in ETH, right? For example, I move value between one rollup and another rollup that is priced in ETH. And then you ask, what is the right collateral to secure a bridge which moves ETH from one chain to another chain? That collateral should be like ETH or ETH, ETH pegged as closely as possible. And so, the fundamental role of ETH is ETH becomes this money that goes into all these different chains and actually doing something interesting there. But then what Eigenlayer augments that is with, if I want to move this risk around, you want to buy insurance or security in the same 
unit, right? Like if all my liabilities are denominated in UST, I might as well get credit in also UST. Like that is how I match the lowest volatility peg. If my um, if I'm moving ETH around on all these rollups, but I have insurance in some other token, then there is a relative volatility of the token to ETH that I need to price. And that just makes it more expensive to have other tokens of security for moving around ETH. But that could be other things that are happening. For example, USD, USDC becomes the dominant unit in all these different chains. It's a different world. And in that world, Somebody may say, I want to stake USDC to secure, you know, a USDC to USDC transfer because that is the closest volatility peg between that. So again, we view this as emergent, you know, market dynamics. Mm-hmm. And that's why even in Eigenlayer, you know, we are initially focusing a lot on ETH staking, but you know, who knows? OP token can be staked. And you know, for an OP token like sequencer, or ARP token can be staked for an ARP token finality and so on. So these will all be happening also. But I think the fundamental role of ETH as money is what makes ETH as collateral ping pong each other to create this very powerful network effect. So mm-hmm. that's that's our vision. Would you say uh, ETH is like the bootloader for the Eigenlayer system as an asset and then other uh, tokens like ARB for Arbitrum, OP for Optimism can then kind of... Uh, enter the game when that is when the system is ready for it. Uh, I, I think that's that's possible because you know many of these different uh, uh, systems may want, for example, the way they they might start off is they say like dual staking with ARB and and mm-hmm. ETH. But unless the the belief is that you know any of these other tokens acquire the moneyness that ETH has been able to acquire risks will be primarily denominated in ETH and therefore mm-hmm. ETH as collateral still dominates in terms of utility. But there'll be other tokens staked for purely like alignment and other purpose. And they, they are the team that build it. They have to choose what token needs to be staked. So that that is absolutely going to be a free market. So long as ETH is the money of the metaverse, this is probably where it's going to go moving forward. If the metaverse demands something else, Eigenlayer will serve that demand. Cool. Uh, last couple last questions, two more questions. Um, Gabriel Haynes, we all love Gabe. He asks, of course, when theoretical token. That's the answer. Okay. All right. <laughs> David, me asks when mainnet. Oh yeah. The early Q2. Early Q2. Early Q2. All right. Is there any other questions that, that that's the end of my questions? Are there any questions that uh, you guys wish that I had asked? What questions should I have? I have asked. The, the, the questions around risks were uh, really good. So, you know, another time, maybe there's a there's an opportunity to dig into just like, you know, in a, in a detailed discussion on some of that. Because I see a lot of people don't understand the models clearly enough to mm-hmm. to know what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they were really good. Some of the discussion around, for example, can you have an Augur Oracle? I think your your questions around that were really awesome. Um, all right, guys. Well, if that's all <laughs> the questions, uh, which it is, I really appreciate uh, Nima. It's good to reconnect. And I'll probably, if I, am I going to see you at East, East Denver? Absolutely. And right. a lot of uh, the team from Eigen Labs, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sriram, I'll definitely see you at East Denver as well. Absolutely. Yep. All right. Bankless Nation, you guys, thank you so much for, for coming on and answering all of these questions from myself and the community. I feel much smarter about Eigenlayer.
Bankless Nation, Thank you so much, David. Deal. crypto is risky, staking is risky, restaking is re-risky. You can lose what you put in. That was a terrible pun, but we are headed west. This is Frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are glad you are with us on the Bankless journey. Thanks a lot. 